Good evening. Welcome to Nighttime. This is Dave Wager. I'm with the leadership team of Relate365.com, a division here of SilverBirchRanch.org. Thanks for choosing to spend some time with me this evening. I hope our time together will cause you to think about who God is. Because believe it or not, there are many people who are angry with God today for some reason. And there are many who are disappointed with God. But they just don't know God. Because if they did know God, they wouldn't be disappointed, they wouldn't be angry. It's easy to get angry with somebody that you don't know. And it's important that we spend time getting to understand the people around us and even more important that we spend time getting to know God. And I'll make a promise to you. If you spend time getting to know God and you really know Him honestly, not just a God you made up in your head, not a God you want to create in your mind, but if you really knew Him, you would not be angry with Him, you wouldn't be disappointed with Him, and you wouldn't feel like you were being cheated at all in any way, shape, or form. But not knowing God, well, that's another story. I want to focus tonight on talking about something that is not often talked about, the importance of sorrow in our lives. It seems like we spend a great amount of time trying to make sure we don't feel badly about anything. We don't want to feel bad. We don't want to be uncomfortable. And the minute we are, it seems like we need to adjust everything about our lives so that we can get away from whatever's bothering us. But what if? What if sorrow has a very important role in our lives? What if it's a part of something that's way bigger than you and I can imagine? I know it's one of those things where you might think, if it is, I don't want much to do with it anyway, so... The thing that got me thinking about this was the idea that Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I thought, here he is, God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, and he is known as a man of sorrows. I wondered how that worked. In Isaiah, he lived, Isaiah did, during a time of decline in Israel. He lived in the shadow of Assyria, and he spoke the word of God to a people who were deaf and blind to it. Kind of like we are today in the United States. You start talking about God to somebody and they either tell you maybe you can't because of a separation of church and state that should not exist. 
and certainly didn't exist in the mind of our founders. Well, it did in a certain manner, but not in the manner that we have it today. Isaiah had a challenge of speaking to people who seemed to refuse to listen to his warnings of looming disaster. Yet he warned that the sin of the people would bring God's judgment, and he also declared that God is sovereign. In a day where kings think they're sovereign, that's probably a pretty dangerous declaration. In Isaiah 53, he said, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's really interesting as we read of Isaiah's description of Jesus coming one day that God himself was a man of sorrows. God, of course, in the very form of Jesus, and Jesus is God. Tonight we're not focusing on the Trinity. But Jesus is the Son, and very much God It's interesting how Isaiah said, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those of us that live in the United States of America today have had many, many, many opportunities to know God. We could look how he worked in our nation from its beginning so we can know God through the history of our nation. But we could also ignore that, or we could rewrite it so it's not there. We've had opportunity to see God in science, 
because of the immense amount of science work that has gone on in our nation. But instead of using science to reveal God, we've used it to try and obscure him and try and show our minds and our lives. Certainly we should know God because of the Bible and what it says. But then that would demand that we actually read it and spend time with God and know what it says. It's one thing to have truth available to us. It's another to live in context of the truth that's available. We live in a culture that seems bent on enjoying the emptiness of life. We seem to be in a culture where if you're ignorant of something that can help you be better, you choose to stay ignorant at times. The Bible makes it clear in the book of Ecclesiastes that the things of this life are empty. Vanity, vanity, empty, worthless, worthless are words that are used often. It seems to me that if we're trying to find worth in the worthless, we'll never find it. Or value in the valueless, we'll never find it. And as we work at trying to find something that's not there, our sorrow will be there as well because we will be disappointed continually. And this disappointment can either be something that drives us to despair or to God. If you're listening tonight and you're living a life where you don't think there's any hope, where there's only darkness ahead, then perhaps you have been trying to make meaning out of the meaningless, and it's impossible. I think when Jesus was mentioned as a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, it probably had to do a lot with his understanding of how things should be, and having to look around and see how things are. To know the good without enjoying it is an increase of sorrow. To see what life could offer for the good side and not being able to avail ourselves of it is more distressing than if we had not known anything at all. The fact that we know that marriages can be good and that people can keep their commitments and honor one another and love one another for life makes it really hard when our marriages aren't good and they seem to fall apart. We tend to shrug our shoulders a lot and say there's nothing that can be done about it. Perhaps but I doubt it.
What we do is we're masking the sorrow that should be there, the sorrow that has a purpose of driving us back to where we belong. The sorrow that's involved in looking at things the way they are and should be, but we're far from that, so we don't want to look at it. I'm going to make a statement here that I firmly believe, and it's simple. Those who are educated are sorrowful. What you do with your sorrow actually matters, though. Those who are truly educated, those who know the truth, will see things in this life that are very disturbing, will see things that are bothersome. And because they know what's really going on, and they know what could go on, they live a lot of their life in sorrow. But the challenge is not to erase the sorrow. The challenge is to do something with the sorrow. Something that would actually matter and something that would actually help us become what we should become. What do most people do with the sorrows in their life? Some try and drown them. There are people that can't imagine living their life without alcohol. They would never admit it, but it controls their life. And they use it in a manner to ease life's tensions and pains, as if that's the answer. Seems to me that when we take something to alleviate our stress and pain and sorrow... The very circumstances that should be driving us to truth and to God have driven us to something like alcohol or something else. Some people use their sorrow to motivate them. Really, they're just all about them. And they want their sorrow to motivate them because they don't want to feel it anymore. I'd be the first in line if we had a line for those who said sorrow is not fun and I don't want it. But then again, to motivate myself to get away from the sorrow, just for getting away from the sorrow's sake, could drive me to things like drinking or drugs or something else to just temporarily get them out of my life. The trouble with doing anything on a temporary basis is that the sorrows will come back and they'll be stronger. And eventually you'll see that you can't deal with them. In fact, in some cases, the sorrows in our life have created us a victim lifestyle. We're so sad all the time that we don't think that we can respond anymore properly and we're living as victims instead of conquerors. When it seems to me that those who know God are more than conquerors. 
and then there are those who allow their sorrows to draw them to God. They take their sorrows and they go to God with them. They lay them at his feet. Because they know God and they know that God alone can take the sorrow. He can sustain you through it. And that one day, there'll be no more sorrows for those who love God and are with Him. Sorrow certainly does come from the educated. And I think it's meant to um, adjust our lives to reality. But it can have no impact on our lives as well. Ecclesiastes 7, 1-5 says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness, sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to hear rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. That's interesting. You can't help but read that passage and think, oh my goodness, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Sorrow comes from education. You know what it could be, you know what it should be, but it's not there. I have no doubt that when a loved one dies, there's sorrow. It's not the kind of sorrow, if you know God, that those experience who don't know God, but it's a sorrow nonetheless. Because the educated know that our sins have separated us from God and our sins eventually, for a time being, will separate us from each other. And relationships are the most important thing in our lives. So when somebody dies, there is a temporary separation from the people in their lives that are still alive. On the other side, there's a great reunion. Unless those who went before them do not know Jesus, and unless those who died in our families don't know Jesus, then the separation is permanent. And because we are relational beings, this education of understanding that the separation is real and either temporary or permanent, it leaves an impression upon our hearts. Not only that, sorrow has another factor it works in our lives. Sorrow causes us to seek the truth 
Because you can never fix sorrow living in lie or living in error. And when you seek the truth and you agree with the truth, that's called repentance. Repentance is not necessarily sorrow. You can agree with God. You can agree at actually being wrong and not actually feel a whole lot of sorrow with it, but sorrow does bring about repentance. In order for one to repent, you need to know God. That's education. In order for one to be forgiven, you need to agree with God. And in order to have an impact on others, you need to experience sorrow. Because you immediately begin to identify with those around you in a way that you couldn't identify with them before. There is always much more meaningful conversation in houses of mourning and times of funerals than in parties. Reflection. There's more camaraderie. There's more understanding that the things of this life are temporary and dealing with them honestly. The true scope of this doctrine and this passage is that there's a certain temper and state of heart which is far greater consequence to real ha than to real happiness than the habitual indulgence of giddy and thoughtless myrrh. That for the attainment and cultivation of this temper, frequent returns of grave reflection are necessary. That upon this account, it's profitable to give admission to those who view human distress, which tend to awaken such reflection in the mind. And that thus, from the vicissitudes of sorrow, which we either experience in our own lot or sympathize with the lot of others, much wisdom and improvement may be derived. Those thoughts came from the biblical illustrator as I was reading the passage and looking at that commentary. So much so that I began to list the benefits of going to a house of mourning. We're not talking AM, we're talking sadness. So I listed a few. One of the blessings or benefits is it allows us to properly check our natural thoughtlessness and levity. When you sit there in a house of mourning, you're forced to think about life and relationships and the things you have done and not done and readjust your life, and that's a good thing. A second thing is it awakens the sediment, sediment, excuse my language here, of piety and brings us into the presence of God. 
going right into the presence of God is an amazing thing to do. And so often it takes sorrow to do that because other things in life, levity and things, we, we seem to ignore God. I think the third benefit would be that it affects our disposition toward our fellow man. When there's sorrow, we realize that we're in this together. Sorrow is something that everybody can identify with, that we have to go through. The fourth benefit is, seems to assist us in moderation of our desires. In the school of temperance and sobriety. We tend to think better and longer and harder and adjust our lives after we've been through the school of mourning. I think maybe the fifth benefit is that it helps us wish, maybe even long for a better world. We would like to live in a world that's better, but I think we mistakenly try and make it better by kicking sorrow out of it. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief, sorrow, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, sorrow is a different work that it does in us. Let me summarize a little bit. There, there's a way things work, and if I were to put it in a formula, which is not good to do, but if I were, good things start with knowledge. And with true knowledge comes sorrow because of what you know. And after sorrow comes repentance because of the experience of sorrow. And when you and I truly repent, we receive forgiveness. It doesn't work the other way. It doesn't start with sorrow and then getting knowledge. It doesn't go from sorrow to knowledge to repentance to forgiveness. Or it doesn't start with repentance and then getting sorrow, I think. Many in the church today think they need to repent and then feel sorry. It doesn't start there. It starts with knowledge. It doesn't start with forgiveness. Forgiveness does not yield sorrow or repentance. Knowledge, being in God's Word, knowing God, knowing the people around us, knowing what is happening in the world around us will bring a godly sorrow because we will see how far it is from where it could be. And our knowledge is comparing it to an absolute in the Bible that we know and to God. And that sorrow will push us to agree with God and what he says and how things are done. That's repentance. And as we agree with God, and as we repent, 
God extends us his forgiveness. And our significance and our security are just fine. And we no longer sit as victims. We are now conquerors through Christ who loved us and saved us. It's easy for us to pretend that we're sorry about something if it will cause us to have less pain for the moment. But again, that's starting in the wrong field. Knowledge. I start the programs normally telling you that if you don't know God, there's all kinds of trouble and that's the knowledge part. And that is really the way it is. I would hope that these nighttime programs help you think about things that need to be thought about. I'm not suggesting that I know more than anyone else, but I love the idea of causing us to pause and think. This is Dave Wager. I thank you for spending time with me tonight. You can download these episodes at relate365.com. And Relate365.com is a division of silverbertranch.org in northern Wisconsin. I invite you to check us out. Good night.